How joyful is the one whose transition is, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, good morning again. I realize I forgot one important announcement uh, that has to do with Lent, and that is the official start to the season of Lent is Ash Wednesday. That marks the beginning of the season of Lent. And we're doing something we've never done before. We are joining with two other churches to celebrate the start of Lent uh, through a, a joint Ash Wednesday service. All the information is on page 7 there in the bulletin. It'll be down um, just south of UCI, where Redeemer Orange County, uh, where their church meets regularly. So we're in a new series for the season of Lent. And as I shared um, a few weeks ago at our town hall meeting, and as we talked about the past uh, four weeks as we've been looking at our vision for 2019. One of our top four goals in 2019 is to be a church that is going deep in prayer together. This means deepening our personal prayer lives as well as deepening our corporate and communal prayer life as a church. Starting from wherever we are, from not even praying at all, struggling, to even engage in prayer, not knowing how to, to praying distractedly, sporadically, to praying regularly but needing to grow, we can all grow deeper. It's my vision that over time, and I feel like I have a long way to go here, and we have a ways to go as a church, but it's my vision that over time that our church would be known as and characterized by being a praying church, a church that prays. In light of this, for the season of Lent, we'll be doing a series on prayer by looking at what could be called the prayer book of the Bible, which is the book of Psalms. You can make the argument, I think, that this was Jesus' favorite book. He quoted it often. He found himself quoting it while he was on the cross, praying it while he was suffering. The book of Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament alongside the prophet Isaiah. And it's been, from the very beginning of the church, it's been 
the prayer book of the church, of Christians, across time and across culture. Instead of a really long intro to the book of Psalms, I'm going to be sprinkling thoughts on the book as a whole each week as we go through and look at different psalms together. But what is a psalm? If you have your Bible open, if you heard uh, the two psalms that we just read, a psalm could be, could be characterized as three different things. A, uh, a psalm is a poem, it's a song, and it's a prayer. Psalms are poetic song prayers. And that's significant because the Psalms are where God teaches us the language of prayer. He gives us the words of prayer like we're learning a new dialect, a new language. But not only do we get the words of prayer, we get the feeling and the heart and the emotion of prayer. These are poems. These are songs. We get the words. We get the emotions. We get the feelings of prayer in every season where we need prayer, which is every season of life and every situation we find ourselves in. We're calling, as you'll see on the cover of your bulletin, we're calling this series The Anatomy of the Soul. And if you look in your bulletin, if you flip to page one, that title comes from something John Calvin wrote in his introduction to the Psalms, which is an uh, introduction to his, his commentary on the Psalms. This long quote here in the reflection quotes, he says here at the beginning, I've been accustomed to call this book, the Psalms, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And he goes on to say, it's like the Holy Spirit has drawn to the life all the griefs, the sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. He says the other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God has enjoined his servants to announce to us. But here the prophets themselves, seeing that they are exhibited to us, speaking to God, laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, draw us to examine ourselves. I love that, that picture. It's twofold here. He says it's like an anatomy of the soul, like a mirror, like... We were standing before a spiritual mirror, like an x-ray machine, and we could see as we're praying the Psalms, as we're reading and wrestling through the Psalms, we actually get to see what's going on inside of us as we express it. It's like a mirror, a mirror for the soul. Um, just like the study of human anatomy breaks down the study of the different systems in the body to the nervous system, the circular system, um, the digestive system, all those things are 11 total systems in the body. So we can also break down the study of the anatomy of the soul into different systems, the different systems in the human soul and spirit. We're going to be doing that over the course of this series. We're going to be looking at prayer and pain and grief, that system, the system of pain and suffering. The system of, of fear and anxiety. But this morning, beginning with Psalm 32, we're going to be looking at prayer and confession or our confession system. That doesn't have a great ring to it, confession system, but that's the best title I could come up with for this. The confession system. This is one spiritual system that modern people think maybe we could do without this one. 
as Eric said earlier, the concept of sin uh, for us is something we feel like is, is, is passe. Sin is something maybe we chuckle at, we use in advertising and things like that. So why do we need a confession system to handle sin? Do we really need a confession system to be healthy people? Isn't the, the idea of sin a part of our unhealth that we need to get over? Doesn't the idea of sin lead to spiritual heaviness and burden and beating ourselves up? If that's how you think, let's see how this psalm shows us one of the main systems in the human spirit and the human soul in action and at work. Because we all, we all have guilt, no matter what our concept of, of sin is. We all have shame. We've all done wrong. We all fall short of what we think we ought to be. We let others down, and all this is under what the Bible calls sin under that heading. And we all have to do something with that. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? And Psalm 32 clears up one of the biggest misconceptions of the Christian faith by showing us this healthy confession system of the soul in action. One of the biggest misconceptions of Christianity in a season like Lent where we say this is a season for prayer and reflection and confession, we say, well, that is probably a season that's a big downer. It's a very melancholy, introspective, spiritual, gloomy time. But this psalm says, and will show us by the end, we'll see this together, that's totally backwards. That's dead wrong. And it all comes back to a major misconception of how this confession system in the human soul works. Psalm 32 teaches us that real confession always leads to joy. If there is no joy in your relationship with God, if there is a lack of joy and energy and freedom in your life, a place that you must look, the Psalms teach us, is at the health of your confession system. So Psalm 32, if you look there at the beginning of this psalm, I think it's printed for you in the bulletin. Oh, it's not there. There's these little notations in the psalms. This one, if you look in your Bible, it says it's a masco. A masculine, which means it's a teaching psalm. It's one of 13 teaching psalms in the book of Psalms. And notice what David is doing. He's looking back on and he's reflecting on his experience of confession in the past that resulted in this profound experience of joy that he bursts out in verse 1 with and that he concludes at the end of the psalm in verse 11 with. He says how joyful it is to be forgiven, to have a healthy confession system. So the point of the psalm is, is to teach us, to show us how to confess and how confession leads to joy. So let's look at how this psalm does it. First, it shows us the alternative to confession. Secondly, it shows us the nature of confession, how it works, what is it? And lastly, the result of confession. So let's look at each one of those. I want to begin first by looking at where this prayer came from. It came out of a time in David's life where he chose the alternative to confession. We don't know exactly when this was or what happened in King David's life. Some have tried to connect this psalm with David's worst sins, adultery and murder. 
but there's no direct connection in the psalm or in this text. So it's probably better to simply leave this as a time where he messed up, he did something wrong, and he didn't want to confess what he did. He decided to choose the alternative to confession. What is the alternative? The alternative of confession, if you look at verse 5, is the, is the opposite, the mere image of what's happening in verse 5. The opposite of confession is not acknowledging any sin or wrongdoing. The alternative to confession is trying to cover it up. And in verse 2, we see it involves living in some level of self-deception where we justify, we try to explain ourselves to ourselves, and we say, yeah, I think that maybe was wrong, I probably shouldn't have done that, but... Well, this is why I did that. And, well, that person probably deserved it anyway because what they did was worse and things like that. Verse 3 describes it very practically. Verse 3 says, David says, when I kept silent. Silence is the alternative to confession. Pretending it didn't happen, not doing anything about it, not saying anything about it, just moving on with life. Before we talk about what this did to David, what this felt like, I think it's important that we ask why. Why would somebody choose this alternative when wrong is done, when wrong is committed, when we mess up? Why would we remain silent? And I think we can answer that question even though we don't know exactly what David did here. Because, let me ask you this, is there anything harder for us to speak out loud than the words, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I'm sorry for, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. Is there anything harder for us to say to our spouse, to a friend, to a parent, to our child, whoever? Can we all spend minutes Hours in silence, knowing that we have to say something, knowing we should say, say something, but we're trying to garner up the ability and the courage to actually say those simple words. I'm sorry. Has anybody experienced a car ride where there was an argument, maybe early on in the journey? And the argument broke down. A conflict happened, you realize somebody's going to have to say, I'm sorry here. But there's just silence. Hours of silence? Anybody had a car ride like that? That's the alternative to confession, silence. Why do we do that? Isn't it because we feel like the experience of confessing will be worse than the experience of silence, right? Right? The ex- I'll just take the silence. It's like torture to be in this car. Here we are. We've got four hours on the journey to go, but I'm going to choose the silence because it's going to feel even worse just to say the words. I was wrong. Too humbling, too shaming, too vulnerable. But Psalm 32 says this is where we are wrong. What happened to David when he chose this alternative? Silence, not acknowledging it. What happens to us when we choose this? It doesn't just go away. We can't conceal it. We can't just move on. Instead, this psalm in the Bible teaches us that it it kind of festers. It creates this disease of the soul that only gets worse and worse. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
This is, this is intense. These effects are intense. David is describing these psychosomatic effects of choosing not to confess and be silent. He says, my bones became brittle. Is he being literal or metaphorical? I'm not sure, but it's like he says this inside structure was giving way. He was feeling weak. He was losing strength. He says, I was groaning all day long. It's like he was bearing an emotional weight. He couldn't get out from under it. It was so heavy. And it wasn't just all day. It says 24-7. All day and night, there was this inescapable sense of heaviness. He was even losing sleep over it all night. And then he says, my strength was drained like in the heat of summer. And I know it gets hot in California, but I grew up in Florida. And the heat is even more unbearable than when it gets hot here. That's what this last section reminds me of. It's like when I'm sitting in 74 degrees air conditioning home in Florida, and I'm just like, I feel good. I can go outside. Maybe I'll play some basketball. And this happened to me many, many times when growing up in Florida. So I, I can do it. You know, it's okay. And I get outside, play basketball for like four or five minutes, and it's like, oh, I have no strength. I have no energy. I have to go back inside right now. It's like the strength is pulled out of you. David said, that's how it felt when he was silent. He was sapped of life and energy and joy. We need to be careful here, but I think we also need to hear this directly. Spiritual self-deception and concealing our sin is a cause. It's not the only cause or the cause, but it's a cause of emotional, spiritual and even physical oppression, depression, dryness. There's a spectrum that the Bible puts out for us. On this side is self-deception. On this side is self-awareness. To bear our own sin, to keep it in, as we, if we live on this side of the spectrum, in self-deception, the Bible says we're not living in truth. And that has an effect on us. The truth of who we are, of who God is, that weighs on us. It's like a disease that festers and eats away at the soul. That's the alternative to confession. That's an unhealthy confession system that's stopped up. Now let's look at what a healthy system of confession looks like in the human soul. How does it work? What is it? Well, first, confession is breaking the silence right? Confession literally means saying the same thing, saying the same thing about ourselves, our sin, and God to God. At the end of verse 5, David says, you forgave the sinfulness of my sin or the guilt of my sin. It's like two words put together right there, the iniquity of my sin. Some translations say it. David says, I finally realized. I finally saw. I was finally able to see sin for what it is, this disease, this oppression, this thing that kept me back from you. He verbalized his sin to the Lord. He spoke it out loud. Confession is acknowledging the specific ways that we've fallen short, that we've gone astray or rebelled against God. The word that's used here, a little bit of a side note, is a word that's most often used for 
confession in a public setting. In David's time, this would have been public worship in the temple. And it's not that people heard all the specifics of what David might have to say, but he was there in a community confessing his sins. And this is why for us as a church, our regular weekly liturgy always makes space for confession. As we articulate the ways that we have fallen short in a community of people who are safe and love us. That's how it's meant to work. We speak our sins out loud. We break the silence. Confession also breaks the cycle. Let me explain this. Psalm 32 describes a cycle of sin. This is how the cycle of confession and sin works. There's sin. There's a falling short or a going astray of what God has intended us to be and to do. Then there's trying to go about life and to cover it and remain silent. Then there's God coming in in his mercy, bringing a heaviness, a heaviness of heart to us. Then there's the confession. And then there is the the surprising, even the shocking experience of forgiveness and joy. That's the confession cycle at work. And David is saying here that the practice of confession, the experience of confession, is meant to teach us to break the cycle. It's probably better that I, I say and describe this as shortening the cycle. Confession shortens the periods of heaviness, these times of spiritual emptiness that we experience. Verse 6. David says, let everyone, this is his teaching part, who is godly, those who are devout, pray to you immediately. Immediately. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, here's what a devout person is, a faithful person. It's not what we might expect. A faithful person is not somebody who is a perfect person, not somebody who might be the most moral and good person you know, or even someone who sins less than another person. A faithful person is someone who responds when God is prompting them to confess. They don't delay. They don't cover it up. They don't avoid or deceive themselves. David says, I'm making an argument here for you to confess. That's why there's a therefore in verse 6. Therefore, because God forgives, never miss an opportunity to confess Don't let your sin, your failure, your shame or guilt keep you from prayer, keep you from God. Let it lead you in to prayer, in to God. In verse 7, he's giving you more of his argument. Why should we confess immediately as soon as we feel that sense that God has shown us that we have done wrong? Verse 7, instead of hiding from the truth and protecting myself, from consequences of surrounding myself with the facade of fake spirituality and pretense, I confess I hide in God. He preserves me from real trouble. I thought it wouldn't be safe to be who I am, to bring out my junk and mess and confess it. But when I did, I found true safety. I thought I would be surrounded with shouts of condemnation, that it would bring me more trouble. But instead, David says, the exact opposite happens. God showed up and said, you are safe in me. Hide in me. You are secure in me. I will shout over you with joyful shouts of deliverance. God is saying, every time we confess, I'm glad you've come back. I can save you. I'm so glad you're back. He shouts it every time. We confess. The more we experience this, 
the shorter our cycles become. The more immediately we move to God when we've done wrong and we say, I'm sorry, we confess. And the more joy we have in him. Confession breaks the silence, it breaks the cycle. And real quickly here, verses 8 and 9, confession breaks our pride. The person who confesses, God says, that's the person I can instruct. That's the person I can teach. That's the person I can show which way to go and provide intimate guidance in the daily experience of life. The person who refuses to confess, did you, did you hear this picture and see this in verse 9? God is saying, that person, I can only treat like a mule. They're always trying to get away from me and fight me, and they only respond to a heavy hand. It says, the horse and mule must be controlled with bit and bridle. I did not know what a bit or a bridle was, so I had to look it up, and I have some pictures for you. So you can know in case you have no idea like me. There are two pictures. From my understanding, the bridle is the whole thing. So the whole headgear that the horse is wearing and the bit is the thing that goes in the mouth. I might be off on this. But there you see the, the bit in the mouth of the horse. There on the, I guess that would be on your right. That's how the rider controls the horse, pulling. His whole head has to be wrapped in straps and moved into one direction or another. And what God is saying to us is, I don't want to treat you like that. That's not how you're meant to receive my guidance. You're supposed to hear from me instruction, grace, wisdom. And that is experienced as you come confessing in honesty. Confession breaks the silence. It breaks the cycle. And over time, as we come in humility... It breaks our pride and makes us more responsive. It makes us more aware of God's direction in our lives. That's the nature of confession. What about the results? I think if we are honest, the results of confession are surprising, I think, to most of us. The results are not what we would expect in a time of confession, of honestly and openly speaking about our failures our wrongdoing, our sin, our outright rebellion against God. And for me, I wish I would have learned this earlier on in life, earlier on in my Christian life. This is transformative to my own life and my own story, and this is transformative. This is the transformative power of Christianity. That a time of confession is not a time of shame. A time of confession is not a time of heaviness. This is not a time where God reprimands us or scolds us. It's not about gloominess or self-absorption or our failure, but it is a time of forgiveness and joy. If we really believe that confession is a time for joy, it changes everything. Look at the beginning of Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Look at the end of Psalm 32, verse 11. All about joy. That's where confession begins and ends. But often for us, we resist confession, we struggle with confession because we feel guilty. 
we do it and we don't feel moved. We don't feel changed. Why is that? Well, Calvin in his commentary on this psalm says, a Psalm 32 prayer, the more we practice it, the more we believe what this psalm has to say. It cures us of the two main distortions of Christianity that lead to a total breakdown in our confession system and that rob us of the joy of Christianity, the joy of the gospel. Two distortions, the two main distortions of Christianity are these. One is assumed forgiveness, and the second is unaccepted forgiveness. Let me explain those. Assume forgiveness. Assume forgiveness is when we think this. To be a Christian is to believe in a God of forgiveness, right? So of course God will forgive me. That's what he does. That's what he's supposed to do. And I'm not all that bad anyway. Um, I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me anyway for this. We explain our sin away. We rationalize it. We downplay. We minimize our sin. So when we get around to confessing it, when we get around to speaking it out loud, it's just kind of this minor, tiny little thing that we have to deal with. This kind of forgiveness will never bring us joy. It's assumed forgiveness. Confession here is very superficial, very general. And there's no real joy because this is not Christianity. This is not saying the same thing about our sin as God says about our sin. The sinfulness of sin. Confession does involve feeling the weight of our sin. Forgiveness can never be assumed. That's one distortion. The second distortion is unaccepted forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't enough. We think Christianity is about trying to make up for our failings to make ourselves better people. When we do wrong, we have to make up for it by our own goodness. We have to tip the scales of karma back into our favor to push back the guilt and the shame that we feel. So instead of minimizing our sin, we over-magnify our sin. It's bigger than the grace of God. We want to pay for it. We want to make up for it. We want to do penance. We want to believe that we are better than that. And so we don't forgive ourselves. That's unaccepted forgiveness. And there's no joy in that. Because this is not Christianity. Back to verses 1 and 2. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. There's two pictures here in verses 1 and 2 that bring the impact of true forgiveness, gospel forgiveness, the heart of Christianity home to our hearts. The word forgiven, it means lifted away, born away, taken away. The image is that the sin that I bear, it doesn't just poof and disappear. It can't just be glossed over. It must be taken away. It must be born by another. There has to be a sin bearer. That's the first image. The second image David gives us. He says, blessed is the one, how joyful is the one whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. This is an accounting term. He's saying my sin is not accounted to me. It's not charged to my account. It's not imputed to me. 
He's saying sin must somehow be accounted for. It has to be charged somewhere to someone. And here God is saying it's not on your account. How is this possible? Sin, our sin must be borne by someone. It must be accounted for in some way. And we see these two things come together. Here is where the joy of forgiveness hits home. It's the only way we experience this joy. The sin that is mine must be borne and taken away by another, a sin bearer. The sin that is mine must be charged to another. And a righteousness that is not mine must be credited to my account. Friends, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for us. He is the sin bearer. Our sin was charged to him. Our sin was put on him so that it might be lifted away from us so that we might receive his righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 32. I'm going to put it up on the screen so we can read along. He says, Now to the one who works, wages are credited as a gift, are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And here's Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Every experience of confession is meant to drive home two things afresh to the human heart. Number one, the weightiness of sin. This is not something that I can work my way out of. This is impossible. There's nothing I can do with this. I can't bear it. If it's charged to my account, there's no way I can make up for it. The weightiness of sin. But secondly, and even more powerfully, God's love for us in Christ. That God in Christ would bear our sin in our place and would say, charge it against me. This is the cure for sin and also the remedy for sin. When we see sin for what it is and we see God for who he is. There's a few times in this psalm where it says that God surrounds us. At the end of verse 7 and the end of verse 10, he surrounds us with shouts of joyful deliverance and he surrounds us with faithful love. Let me ask you this. Uh, some of the most joyful times in your life, a lot of things bring us joy. But does anything bring us more joy than being surrounded by people who really know us? Really know us. People we've wronged. People know the wrong that we've done. And yet they surround us with shouts of joy. I'm glad you're here. I celebrate you. I want to stay with you and faithful love. Who we are and all of our junk and mess doesn't drive them away. It draws them close. The experience of confession drives home to the human heart. That is who God is towards us because of Jesus. 
He says, I'm so glad you're here. I want to shout. I want to shout with joy. And I want you to know that I'm not going anywhere. Why would we ever want to walk away from someone like that? Confession is the cure for sin, but it's the remedy for sin. Two final application thoughts as we close. Some of you are carrying around unconfessed sin. Maybe you've done the the general, somewhat superficial confession thing. You thought you confessed, but you really have not. Or maybe you've confessed, and you don't believe that you're forgiven. And you're trying to work your way out of this heaviness. How do you know if this is you? There's a lack of joy between you and God and you and others. There's no shared joy with those who've experienced the joy of forgiveness. If this is you, the cycle can stop this morning. It can be broken and you can know joy. Friend, grab a hold of that joy in Jesus. Over the next several weeks, we'll be inviting you to take steps deeper into prayer and to work on your own confession system in the season of Lent. And here's the final thought I want to share. You can only learn this, you can only get this joy through prayer, not through a sermon, not through thinking about it, not through studying it more. The Psalms teach us this joy comes through communication and communion with God in prayer. And so for your joy, for our joy as a church, we enter into the season of Lent, stepping into the truth more and more of who we are and being able to rejoice in who God has made us in Christ. That's the invitation. That's where we're headed for the next seven weeks. I want to give you some time right now Now, we had some time for silence already. I'm going to give you some time before I close in prayer to work on your confession system. Whatever God is prompting, bringing to your heart, bring it out. Receive the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. Let's pray now. Oh, how I long for more of this joy in my own heart, Lord. And oh, how I long that we would experience this as a church, for everyone here more deeply, that we would be able to say how joyful, how joyful we are because we are forgiven, because our sin is covered, because it's no longer in my account. Give us a taste of that joy this morning. Lead us into that joy in this season as a church. 
that we would be set free from having to pretend that we're better than we are, that we would move more and more into the truth, knowing that it won't weigh us down with guilt and shame, but that you can take and you have borne those things for us in our place. May there be great renewed joy because we're experiencing that. We're we're grabbing a hold of that. Lead us into that joy with the glory and the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing a closing song together.